The following is a conversation between Amit Paley, CEO and Executive Director of The Trevor Project, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM, in New York City. According to a recent survey, 39% of LGBTQ youth seriously considered attempting suicide in the past 12 months, with more than half transgender youth seriously considering the same thing. Those are alarming statistics. But if you are a young person in crisis, feeling suicidal, and in need of a safe and a judgment-free place to talk, there is such a place to turn to. It's called The Trevor Project, and it's a pleasure to have with us tonight their CEO and Executive Director, Amit Paley. Good evening, Amit, and welcome to The Business of Giving. Thank you so much for having me. The Trevor Project was founded back in 1998. How did it get started? So The Trevor Project got started actually out of storytelling in Hollywood. There was a short film called Trevor, a fictional story about a young 13-year-old boy uh, named Trevor, who realized that he was gay and then dealt with feelings of depression and suicide. It ended up winning an Academy Award for Best Short Film, and after it did, it aired on HBO, and the producers of the film realized, well, all these young people across the country are going to see this movie. We want to make sure that they can get resources if they are young people like Trevor. And what they discovered was that there was no national organization providing that support for LGBTQ youth. The movie was called Trevor, so they founded a nonprofit called The Trevor Project. They created the country's first 24-7 phone lifeline for LGBTQ youth. They launched it about 10 minutes before the show went on the air on HBO, <laughs> and then the phone started ringing off the hook that night, and it hasn't stopped for the past 21 years. Incredible. Well, the statistics I cited in the opening came uh, from your organization's first national mental health survey among LGBTQ youth. Share with us some of the key findings of that survey. It was, so this was, first of all, a really important and groundbreaking study. There were uh, more than 30,000 young people across the country who took That's part extensive. in this. And um, so important, but also really heartbreaking. As you shared, 39% of LGBTQ youth seriously consider suicide every year. Um, that that actually ends up uh, converting into more than 1.8 million LGBTQ youth mm. across the country who seriously consider suicide. This is a public health crisis, and the full report goes into detail about this is not a problem that affects just one gender, just one race, just one part of the country. We heard from young people in all 50 states and in Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia. Um, and one of the things that we that we saw very clearly is that young people right now are identifying in very different ways than people might have before. In our survey, young people identified more than 100 different types of sexual orientations mm -hmm. and more than 100 different types of gender identities. And we often see that young people who have identities that are perhaps not as well-known face some of the highest risk, in particular transgender and non-binary youth. Um, they face much higher rates of uh, attempts of suicide, of considering suicide, and they also face much more discrimination in their lives. Mm -hmm. Did your survey indicate that the political climate has any kind of impact in the way they feel? Yes, we found that young people in the survey, found, more than half of them said that the political climate had an impact on their mental health. Um, and we've also seen that in other types of data that we've been collecting. Um, the day after the presidential election in 2016, our call volume more than doubled in a 24-hour period of time. When there are negative policies, in particular, there have been a lot of negative policies in the past few years against transgender and non-binary people. We have seen spikes in those young people feeling distressed and reaching out to us for help. 
You know, looking at those numbers another way, I know that suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people in the U.S. How much more likely is it uh, for LGBTQ youth? LGBTQ young people are more than four times more likely to attempt suicide than their peers. And as you mentioned, so suicide overall is a public health crisis in this country, Mm -hmm. particularly acute for young people. And then it's LGBTQ youth who really face these much higher rates. So this is suicide is often an issue that people do not feel comfortable talking about. There's still a lot of stigma. And that's what we're trying to both get the word out on how um, significant a public health crisis there is and to also let young people know that they are never alone and they can always reach out to the Trevor Project for help. Well, learning the warning signs of suicide is a huge part of presenting a crisis. What are some of those signs? So there are a number of different warning signs that that can indicate that someone might be thinking about suicide. Um, They might be feeling lethargic. They might be uh, not willing to go to school or get out of bed. They might seem withdrawn. I think what's very important for everyone to know is that one of the most important things you can do to understand if someone is thinking about suicide is to ask them. A lot of people are very nervous about that. Some people think that if you ask someone, it might plant the idea in their head. Mm -hmm. That is not true. That is a myth. All the research indicates that is not correct. In fact, asking someone if they are thinking of killing themselves can be life-saving for that person because it can allow them to share what they're going through and allow you to make a connection with them and try to identify places where they can get help. That's great advice. Um, If I may, what was it like for you when you realized you were gay and what thoughts ran through your mind? Yeah, when I was a a teenager, I realized that that, um, I was gay and it was really difficult for me because I had this idea that if anyone ever knew who I was, um, they would never accept me, that they would never love me. And, um, you know, I kept that part of myself hidden for a really long time. And it was very, very um, difficult. And I was in a lot of dark places um, in parts of my teenage years and into college. Um, I came out in my senior year of college. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, although I faced some difficulties in doing that, um, you know, it was such an important part of my life because when you are um, unable to share who you are, it really has a significant impact on your mental health. Oh, I can imagine. Um, And, you know, today as a proud LGBTQ person leading an organization, um, it's kind of amazing for me to reflect on the thing that I was most ashamed about, the thing that I was most afraid that anyone would ever find out about me is now not actually something that I'm incredibly proud of, but is actually my my life's work to (laughs) to talk to people about um, being proud and supportive of LGBTQ people. Mm -hmm. You were a volunteer at the Trevor Project for maybe eight years or so before you became the CEO, so you've taken hundreds and hundreds of phone calls from young people, Um, and I know that you continue to man the phones to this day. What are you hearing? Uh, What are the messages that come through? We, we we hear I mean, first of all I want to say that that being a volunteer counselor uh, on the Trevor Lifeline is the most rewarding thing I have ever done and continue to do and I as you say I continue to to talk to young people. Well, that's great because um, you know a lot of CEOs you lose touch with the organization when you stop doing that and it becomes important to continue. So I, I applaud you for for continuing to work those phones. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, mean, for me, it's a privilege to be able to do it, and it's incredibly rewarding. I do also think it's really helpful in my job as CEO that 
um, not just looking at numbers, not just looking at long-term strategic plans, but actually he, the reason we exist as an organization mm -hmm. is to be there for LGBTQ youth and be able to hear directly from them really does inform um, so much of what I do in my day-to-day -day part of my job. Um, in terms of what we hear from young people, uh, it's a little bit hard to sort of put that into one sort I of snapshot because <laughs> we, you know, we hear from so many young people mm -hmm. and they have so many different types of experiences. We hear from some young people who are calling because they are literally, they, they have a weapon in their hands and they are thinking about killing themselves in shortly. Sometimes we hear from young people who are not imminently thinking of killing themselves, but they're in a really difficult situation there. They were just in a breakup. They're thinking about coming out and they're struggling with mm -hmm. it. They're having a tough time at school because someone is bullying them. So it's it's a wide range of experiences. Um, you know, I think for me, um, the most rewarding ones are when you um, have the ability to make a connection and you really it, it you can tell that it's a key transformational moment in that person's life. You know, I I, I think about one call that I that I had um, with with a young woman who was in the middle of the country, I won't say exactly where, and she was talking about this, um, the fear that she had about her father not accepting her, um, and she wasn't sure whether she should come out to anyone. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, she said, I just don't know what would happen if I came out, because uh, I've never told anyone that I'm a lesbian. And I said to her, well, You've come out to me. Uh, you've told me that you're a lesbian, and I and I have to tell you, there may be people in your life who won't accept you for being who you are, and your father may be one of those people. But I need you to know that there are many, many people in the world who will not only accept you for being who you are, but will celebrate you and be proud of who you are. And I want you to know that I am one of those people, and I am incredibly proud of you. And when we say things like that to young people, you often just the next thing you hear is someone just sobbing because they yeah. never they never thought that someone would not only tolerate them and accept them, but celebrate them. And that's one of the most powerful things that we can do is just to be there to listen and to affirm people for being who they are. Yeah, no question. That's a great story. And I think when you're in that place, you're only looking at the negative side of the equation and never looking at the other side of it. It's just the way humans are built. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, do you have a psychiatrist or psychologist on staff to help work with some of the, the, the people who call? We do. So we actually uh, just hired our first ever medical director. Um, she is a, a psychiatrist. Great. And um, our head of crisis services is a clinical psychologist. We also um, have been building out our research department, and we have um, clinical psychologists um, in our research department as well. Um, you know, not, not everyone on our staff is a psychiatrist or a psychologist. We have many people who are um, from different backgrounds in public health, in social work, and many people who have been trained. I mean, I think it is important to, to note that to be a volunteer counselor at the Trevor Project, you do not need to be a, a psychiatrist or mm -hmm. psychologist or social worker. Um, we can teach um, people who have basic skills around uh, empathy, if you, if you have the ability to empathize and the ability to learn and be adaptive um, and to create a safe, welcoming environment, we can teach you how to be uh, a counselor. But we do think it's really important to make sure that we're bringing in um, really important disciplinary perspectives from um, epidemiology, public health, psychiatry, psychology, because oftentimes so many parts of the mental health world are siloed mm -hmm. and suicide is too big a public health crisis and too complex to not be tapping into every source of knowledge and wisdom that we can. Yeah, for sure. I mean, do you ever encounter um, the challenge of regular callers? 
uh, people who may not be in a crisis mode at the moment but are lonely or just want to chat. And how do you address that situation while wanting to keep the lines free for somebody who might really be in the midst of a crisis? Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure that I would call them a challenge, but we do, we yeah. do face people who regularly um, call us. Mm -hmm. And there are people who regularly call us and actually text us and chat with us. And there might be different reasons that they, that they do that. Um, we, are not, we are not an organization that is set up to provide ongoing we're not a substitute for um, provision of mental health counseling um, but there are some people who don't have access to that type of mental health um, treatment that they need um, and so we actually are there for people who will reach out to us at various times and sometimes there are people who are really going through a very very difficult time and oh, they reach sure. out to us mm -hmm. every single day um, you know we have um, certain ways that we um, want to make sure that we're properly um, treating them and that we are prop appropriately serving them. Um, but yes, we do have people who reach out to us many, many times. And for us, it's important to make sure that we are there for people when they are in crisis or suicidal. You know, we've been talking about that uh, 800 hotline. Um, but as you just alluded to, you have other platforms uh, that people can connect with you. Speak a little bit about those. Yeah, well, it, it's 2019, so uh, mm -hmm. young people uh, do still pick up the phone sometimes, and we and we do have many young people who reach out to us by phone. But there are many young people who would never pick up the phone. They ever, want, ever they, <laughs> for anything. <laughs> for any, they 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 want to text and they want to chat. And the Trevor Project was actually um, uh, an early adapter to uh, exploring the world of text and chat for suicide prevention. Um, we had a big milestone in our organizational history earlier this year. We took those digital crisis services to be 24-7 for the first time earlier this year. Fantastic. And that's really important because, you know, especially for our population, if you're a young person, you're 14 years old, you're in your bedroom, and you need help at 2 a.m. when it could be a really dangerous time of night, um, you may not feel safe picking up the phone because your parents might hear you. But mm -hmm. in your bed you can text, you can chat from your phone. We also know that there are certain parts of the population that we serve, um, transgender and non-binary youth um, and female identified youth who prefer digital crisis services over phone. And so that's what we've really been working on building out that program. We want to make sure that we can meet young people wherever and whenever they are. What are you doing in the realm of uh, AI and machine learning to, to better serve uh, the young people? Yeah, so that's a very uh, exciting, I think, area of opportunity for us. We are just starting to build out a program to really make sure we're leveraging technology for good. Uh, we just received a major grant from Google. Um, we won part of their AI social good competition. And we're going to be using machine learning and AI to help improve our quality of care for young people. So one of the early applications that we're gonna be looking at is how can we identify more quickly in a conversation, especially on our digital conversations where there's text, mm -hmm. how can we identify there whether someone is at higher risk of suicide? And if there is there a queue and people have a wait time to get there, how can we make sure that we are prioritizing the people that are higher risk? And we ask people that, we perform a risk assessment, but there are ways that we think we can use machine learning and AI to more rapidly identify those highest risk people. And that, you know, one minute, a couple minutes, that could be the difference uh, between life and death for some people. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, how does the Trevor Project work in the schools? 
So we have uh, an education program. We provide uh, LGBTQ competence suicide prevention trainings uh, in schools um, for youth facing adults. Uh, we talked about how suicide is a public health crisis in this country, but there is very, very little government investment in suicide prevention mm -hmm. and very little in schools. As we said, it's a thing that sometimes people are afraid to talk about. So in some cases, we are providing LGBTQ competent suicide prevention trainings, but in some places, that's the only suicide prevention trainings that, right. that are available in those schools. So um, it's a program that we're, we think is really important because it's a way that we can help end suicide among LGBTQ youth by trying to um, build support systems in schools and other places where young people are. How do you go about measuring your impact? We measure our impact in a number of different ways. Um, it's interesting because before I became uh, CEO, there was actually a big discussion on the board of the Trevor Project of having an independent evaluation of the Trevor Project's um, crisis services. It had never actually been done before. Mm -hmm. And as you know, there are a lot of nonprofits that in decades of existence have actually never measured whether the work that they do has an impact. Or maybe you're afraid um, to find out. Exactly. I think it I think it can be scary and I think it was a little <clears throat> scary for the Trevor Project. Um, so the Trevor Project um, worked with um, academic researchers to conduct uh, an independent evaluation of uh, its crisis services on phone, text and chat. Uh, and the, the key finding from that uh, independent evaluation was that 90% of the young people that the Trevor Project serves on its crisis services see a significant reduction in their suicidal ideation, not only right at the point of contact, but the researchers actually followed up several weeks later, mm -hmm. and they found that that impact persisted. So it actually turned out to be a, a higher impact than, than, than uh, I think the organization <laughs> expected. So um, I think validating for the Trevor Project, but I also think for people listening, I just think it is so important that um, that we look at the data and actually measure is we, we feel good about what we're doing, but is what we're doing actually working? It's so important because if it's not, you will need to know that so you can adjust and figure out ways that you can improve. And even within that evaluation, um, a very high, a really great top line finding, still lots of it. When you do an evaluation, you find opportunities for things that you can improve in. Yeah. And that's great to hear because I think so many organizations and the way this is often discussed is that you need to do it for funding. But really, that's secondary to getting better at what you do and being more effective. And it, it just seems to be the, the right priority that you have. Let me ask you about conversion therapy, because some people may not know what that is, and some of your advocacy efforts that relate to it. Mm -hmm. So we have a, a small but mighty advocacy team, and conversion mm -hmm. therapy is really one of our top advocacy priorities. For those that don't know, conversion therapy is the dangerous and completely discredited practice of trying to change someone's sexual orientation or their gender identity. It does not work. It is harmful. It actually mm -hmm. puts people at much higher risk of suicide. And um, we are working to end it once and for all. Um, but it is still very common. I think most people do not realize, most people think, did this go out in the Middle Ages or in the 1950s? Um, there are 32 states in the United States where it is still legal to try to have a licensed clinician put a young person through conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. That's wrong. Every organization, the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, every mental health organization says that doesn't work. And so we have a campaign, 50 bills, 50 states, to end conversion therapy everywhere. Um, there's been a lot of success in recent years. Um, so 18 states, the legislatures have passed bans. Um, that number was zero a decade ago. 
Um, but we have 32 states. A lot more to, to do. Yeah. A lot more to do. And, and we estimate that there are 700,000 people in this country who have undergone conversion therapy. Wow. So we're working with our many partners across the country um, to ensure that we can protect all LGBTQ young people from this essentially form of torture. Mm-hmm. Speak a little bit about your business model and who some of your major supporters are. Uh, so we, um, we have a diversified uh, uh, funding model. That's um, always the best. We, <laughs> uh, so we, we right now, um, our primary sources of funding are actually from um, small individual donors and from corporations. Um, it's interesting, actually, our, our major gift program is not as strong as we would like it to be. We're working to build it out more. Um, but it's, it's really gratifying to see how many young people and how many adults who are not necessarily LGBTQ, but just care about LGBTQ young people send in amounts, $50, $100. And when you see a note from a um, fifth grader who's sending in $25 and saying, this is just so important, um, I want to make sure all young people feel supported, um, it's, it's really amazing. You so, make your day. Yeah, it, 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 makes, it makes your day and it actually gives you confidence that um, the, the future is brighter than we might otherwise think because <laughs> seeing young people just put what is for them a massive amount of money. Um, so we really work on, an, on engaging um, donors across the country um, at, at all levels. Um, we have a major donor program. We work with companies and um, we really try to partner with companies that are invested in our mission and that are focused on not just supporting us financially, which is so important, but also helping to spread awareness. And we've had some um, partnerships that have been really uh, exciting, you know, just to highlight a, a few of them. Uh, we've been working with Macy's. Um, Macy's in their stores has been doing a roundup at the register. So it's been so incredible to see a brand like Macy's putting LGBTQ youth and suicide prevention front and center, uh, working with their employees so that they can speak to customers about what's been going on. Um, and so it's been raising a lot of awareness and funds. Um, AT&T is a major supporter that helped us um, go 24-7 on our digital crisis services. We've done a lot of work with Abercrombie and Fitch, mm-hmm. which has done a lot of really um, interesting promotion on showing a really diverse section of the LGBTQ community, people of different genders and races and ethnic backgrounds and body sizes um, to really show LGBTQ youth that they are seen and heard and loved. What's it like to work at the Trevor Project? And what is unique about your corporate culture that makes it a special place for people to show up every morning? You know, I think one of the really unique things about the Trevor Project is that um, we come in every day to save lives of people. And every single person at the organization, no matter what their job is, is saving, is helping to save lives of young people. Um, that's an incredible privilege. Uh, I don't take that for granted. I don't think anyone on our team takes that for granted. Um, you know, I've I've worked at other places that I loved working and that were amazing. It's just it's it's a different feeling when you're coming in and knowing that um, we are there for young people at their darkest moments. You know, I think some of the things about our culture. Um, you know, we um, we really want to make sure that we have a culture. Um, that is focused on impact, mm-hmm. and we're a fast-paced culture. Um, we're a data-driven, evidence-informed culture. We're also a culture that really cares a lot about um, making sure that our employees feel um, uh, safe and supported, and they have the opportunity to grow. Um, you know, as someone who came from um, came from uh, the for-profit world, 
um, I, I often hear people who sort of think of the nonprofit and for-profit world as being very opposed. You know, you hear people in the nonprofit space sometimes put down the for-profit space or the for-profit space put down the nonprofit space. We all hear it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think in my view, I think both I think both sectors have a lot to learn from each other. I think, um, you know, the best places I the highest performing cultures I have seen are ones that are really focused on impact and being evidence um, based and, and data informed, which I think sometimes people only associate with the for-profit space. And I think the best working places are ones where people bring their whole heart and their whole selves and are really driven by passion and emotion, which I think people often associate with the nonprofit mm -hmm. space. And in the Trevor Project, we are really trying to meld those two together to make sure we have people who are the smartest, most brilliant, but also the most passionate and big hearted people you can imagine. And that's that's the culture that I feel really privileged to come into work every day at. Let me close with this, Amit. And I really want to pick up on something you said before. And that was the thing that you most feared and caused you the greatest stress in your life has ended up being your life's work. How does that experience inform the way you go about your job? I think it, it it's both simultaneously um, incredibly rewarding and, you know, makes me feel just so lucky to be in a place and in a country and a time where um, I can be open um, and supported for who I am. I think it also it makes me feel a lot of pressure and, <laughs> and a high bar because um, even as we are talking right now in New York City where um, I feel safe walking on the streets and being who I am. We know that there are so many people in parts of the world where they are not safe doing that. And there are many people here in the United States who are still not safe mm -hmm. being who they are um, and being open about their identity. Um, you know, the, some of the statistics we've talked about, particularly around transgender and non-binary people, it is still not safe for them to be who they are in so many parts of the country. And, um, that's why we exist to make sure that we can change that and make sure every young person knows that they are not alone, that they are beautiful the way they are, and that they can always turn to the Trevor Project for help and support. Well, Amit Pally, the CEO and Executive Director of the Trevor Project, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For those who might be in need of someone to talk or reach out to, how can they connect with the Trevor Project? And for those who want to become involved in the organization, perhaps as a volunteer or financially supporting it, what do they need to do? So uh, if you are a young person or know a young person who uh, needs help and support from the Trevor Project, they can reach out by phone at one eight six six four 4 trevor They can reach out by text, uh, texting 678-678. Um, you can connect to our chat service by going to our website, which is www.thetrevorproject.org. Um, and we also run other platforms and services that you can find on our website as well. Um, if you are a person who is interested in getting involved as a volunteer, there's also information on our website on how you can sign up to do that. It's an incredibly rewarding experience. And if you're interested in supporting us financially as a donor and just finding out more information, you can also do that by going to our website. We are looking to um, grow this community of people who are interested in being there and standing up for LGBTQ youth. Well, thanks, Amit. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Great being with you. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this.
The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at Biz of Give on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving.